Good morning. Let me rearrange the furniture here for a second. I wonder if you can relate to a guy we'll fictitiously call Jack. We'll protect his identity only because he is so many of us. Um, Jack is somebody who um, had some voids in his life, some emptiness, some recognized holes, if you will, and had a couple of caring friends who wanted to introduce Jack to Jesus because they have found fulfillment and purpose and direction in their life because of what the Lord has brought to them. So they very kindly and compassionately explained uh, the story of who Jesus is, that he is who he claims he is in the scriptures. And, uh, and, and that message caught Jack at the right time in the right way. And Jack responded to that message. He, he understood his need for a savior. He understood the offer of salvation. And he did what we would call, uh, so often he accepted Jesus. So, so Jack opened his life up for Jesus to move in. And so, um, what Jack experienced was some immediate fulfillment, kind of a sense of direction, and maybe things are looking up. Maybe I am getting put on a course that's going to lead to answering some of my issues and, and filling some of the voids and things that I've had in my life. And, um, and Jack went from a place of just believing, as so many of us do, so many people even out there in the world believe that, that yeah, God's here. I don't have a problem, a concept with, or a problem with the concept of God and that he exists. And I even believe because so many people say that Jesus was, uh, historically good and all these things that, yeah, I'm sure he's, he's probably the son of God and everything, but that's about as far as it goes. Well, Jack graduated from that mindset to the mindset of Jesus is pretty important and Jesus is, uh, to be elevated in my, uh, in my estimation. And in my respect for who he is. And so I'm going to put Jesus now on a pedestal and I'm going to put myself around the things of God. I'm going to be around his people. I'm going to, um, admire those that seem to have a real passion for God and Jesus and, and, and doing his work. And, uh, if I can, maybe I'll support that somehow. You know, if someone gives a stirring presentation on a Sunday, I'm going to contribute to that and I'm going to see to it that the work goes forward and things. But for Jack, everything kind of stopped at that place of putting Jesus in a position of respect or putting uh, the things of God in a place of, I really appreciate that. And Jack kind of stayed at that level, if, if you can, and it's arguable that you can even stay at an even level like that. Uh, but, but Jack uh, represents so many people in the church of Jesus Christ in, especially in 2018, but we've seen this trend growing now for decades where a lot of people, I like to think of it as like if a fire was going, you know, a pit and everything, you got logs and everything. A lot of people like the warmth of the fire and they get close to it and they, they see the benefit of it and everything, but there isn't this kind of ownership or this buy-in or something that says, oh, the logs are getting low. How are we going to supply that with wood and those kinds of things? It's just, no, I needed it for a time got my hands warmed and then back to the things of life, back to the things that I am normally facing. And so for Jack, a lot of his void that originally led him to Jesus crept back. And we would say, well, how is that possible? Because he stayed in the church. He sang the songs. He supported the missions. He did those kinds of things. Jack didn't, he's not some kind of liberal, crazy person with all the signs saying God is dead and shouting at every chance he can get. I mean, he's not anti-God. Jack is pro-God. 
How does a guy who's pro-God fall back into that trap of void and emptiness? And I think that this is the, the, the culmination, if you will, the, 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 uh, the crux of where we've been going for the better part of this year is we've been talking about what makes a church healthy because it is important for the people of God to understand that this stuff does not just come automatically. That uh, because we signed on the dotted line or because we prayed a prayer or something along those lines, that the things of God just matter to us so much or that life now becomes easy and I can put everything in these clean compartments. The reality is, is that that Jack never really moved on from being worried about the car payment and being worried about whether or not he had friends and and uh, being worried about how his marriage was going and all those kinds of things. And he never asked the Lord, am I approaching my life upside down? Do I need help in reprioritizing the things that God would have me to do. Jack never got to that point because he just liked the warmth of the fire. He liked kind of getting close to it. Improving as a Christian for Jack was important, but it wasn't urgent. If I go to church enough and I get some on me, maybe it'll rub off. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll kind of pick my life up. Maybe it'll make sense to me over time. But the urgency of making sure, well, why is the fire dying? Do I have to go grab some other logs? Who's, who's supplying the fuel for this fire? And who's, who's caring about this? And are we, are we making sure this fire continues? That hadn't reached Jack's world yet. Let me ask you, because I, I said at the outset, Jack is fictitious. He's just a representation of what we run into so often. And I think where most of us has been, have been at various stages of our Christian walk. And that's understandable to some extent because we're not fully, uh, rescued from our sinful humanity. Um, let me ask it this way. If God showed up to you today, this is a, a thing that we love to ask uh, just to get the question going. But if God were to show up today and say, if I could provide some increase in your life, what would it be for? What's the category of your life you want me to show up? If I were the genie, you could rub on the lamp and everything. And I go, poof, here's your three wishes. What are the first things that come to mind? Now we have our Sunday school answers, right? You guys know, everyone knows what the Sunday school answer is. Jesus. Jesus is always the Sunday school answer, right? If you don't believe me, so I'll go back to the old illustration to prove to you what a Sunday school answer is. So the teacher was teaching a class in Sunday school and said, kids, what's the little gray furry thing with a big bushy tail that runs along the power lines? And the little kid said, I know all of our answers are supposed to be Jesus, but it sounds like a squirrel, right? (laughs) Sunday school answer is Jesus. Bump, bump, bump. There you go. I'm just getting warmed up. Good luck. Sorry. I I expected more laughter so I could take that drink and it not be so awkward. (laughs) Thank you. There we go. All right. That's better. The Sunday school answer is if God asked me that question, I would say, well, I want more of him. I want his uh, presence in my life. You know, if we had time to think about it. But if God said, I'm not even going to give you, I'm supernaturally going to force out of your mouth the, the top three things on your mind. Don't you think most of us kind of fall into that category because of where we're at? You know, it's like, well, I could use a few more bucks or I'm kind of tired of people not listening to me. I could use a little bit more influence in my life or I'm sick of getting passed over for that job promotion or why don't I have more? Do, do people still care about Facebook friends? It's been long enough now. Maybe we're beyond that. There's a bunch of 20 somethings that are going Facebook. Does that thing even exist? So, um, you know, whatever the pursuit is, the thing that occupies our mind the most, if God forced those things out of our mouth, you know, the reality is he knows it's already in our hearts anyway, but this is what would have trapped Jack 
after he had first become a Christian. He came to Jesus, as so often we do, with a need being presented as Jesus is the answer to that need because he is the answer to all needs. But he stayed stuck in what he thought was the real need of his life. You know, I need that money or I need those friends or I need this. And my friends seem to be saying that Jesus provides all of those things. This is great. But that isn't the answer that Jesus was providing for Jack. He just stayed stuck at that level. And somehow that's what he's to provide. Most of us, not all, don't really desire what God wants us to desire until crisis hits. And I would like to say that I'm probably wrong on this, but I think those of us that are in ministry, those of us that have led small groups and other things like that, we know that's the truth. We get lulled into a sleep that as long as life is good, we always have room for Jesus. And as long as we have room for him, he doesn't quite come in and take ownership of the whole thing. And so when the crisis hits, when things get worse, that's when we all say, like Jack would have said, uh, what was Jesus saying to me all these years? How am I supposed to apply this? Where do I find that again? I'm still stuck looking for second Hezekiah in the New Testament somewhere. There's no such thing as second Hezekiah, by the way. Is there even a first Hezekiah? But most of us do not ask, what does God want to increase in our life until the things go terribly wrong? You see, the thing that we have to understand in our few minutes together, we're only going to have a, a little bit of a shorter period of time here. We're going to be breaking up for our advanced Sunday. At the bottom of the hour, we'll be asking our ladies to stay here. Michelle Kenny, our director of women's ministries, is going to be addressing our ladies. Jeff Dion, our director of men's ministries, is going to be uh, talking to the men out in the hub. If you're new to faith, we do this once a month. We've been doing this now for years to great effect. And uh, we would appreciate you giving that a shot, sticking around and uh, letting the Lord bless you with that very specific message that he may have for you this morning. Uh, but in the few minutes that we have together, what my goal is, is to let us all in on the fact that God is pro-growth. God cares about things that grow. God likes to see the thing that he started become better, grow into something that flourishes. But you and I sometimes redefine what we expect God to grow, and we get a little confused on what that growth should look like. But in Jack's case, if he had asked the question, God, what do you want to grow in my life? The Lord would have been faithful to provide an answer. But what Jack came into Christianity was uh, with the mindset of is what can I get out of this that will grow in the ways that I want to experience? There's a quick uh, a thing that you can understand, a little difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is very um, Bible college level versus seminary level. So I'm going to admit that right out of the gate. So um, Old Testament, God dealt with the children of Israel. That is not a mistake of a word. The children of Israel, we'd say that's, you know, a, a term of, of uh, endearment and adoption and all those things. And all those things are true children, but also to give us the clue that he is dealing with children much in the way you and I have to deal with our own children. You know, when you're raising little ones, your, your judgment has to be swift and clear. Oops, I didn't do that in public. You're not supposed to do that. Don't call DHS on me. Anyway, uh, but the, uh, the, your judgment is supposed to be swift and clear. It's supposed to be immediate so that a child who would not understand a lecture of the ways of the world understands that's my, that's my boundary. That's my, that's my discipline for making that mistake. In the same way, God would also reward his children for good behavior, almost like we would say, good job, here's a lollipop. 
When we read the Old Testament and we see how God blessed the children of Israel, we have a tendency to look at that going, well, that's for me. He increased lands and wealth and gazillions of children and all these kinds of things because every time they did something right, he said, I want to show the uh, fruit of increase to be a blessing and a sign of favor on their life. Now, we have examples of that in the Old Testament. That doesn't mean all of God's children experience that, but we, we get a sense, we get a clear description, I should say, in the Old Testament that God said, where my blessing showed up, so did obvious uh, demonstrations of favor. Does that make sense? So in the Old Testament, good job. Here's your lollipop. In the New Testament, we come into what's an economy of grace where God says, at some point when we get old enough, some of the flesh and the whatever doesn't really, and speaking metaphorically, doesn't have as much meaning. I want to be able to have peace when I lay my head down on my pillow at night. I want to have hope in my eternal security. I want to, I want to know that the kingdom that I'm walking in, that I'm, that I'm operating in the system that is going to bless me with peace and security and safety. And those are the things that the, that, that Jesus kingdom as he's ushering it in promises and promotes. So the way that God says, good job, I'm with you in the New Testament has less to do with the things that we can touch and we can see has more to do with the comfort that comes as a, the Holy Spirit is near us and things. Those generalizations, you'll see examples of both those things in, uh, in, in both sides of that in each Testament. But keep in mind that, uh, that when we see things that sound like promise in the Old Testament, oftentimes it's because he's leading up to when Christ comes and fulfills all the law and he provides all of that, that uh, different things will be available to us. Uh, we, we understand that as he, as he talked to Noah and Abraham, he said, be fruitful and multiply. God wanted at that time for the generations to start flourishing. It was part of his promise that that would happen. Psalm 92, 12 and 13 says, the righteous man will flourish like a palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. These are, these are, the word flourish is not there by accident. God isn't saying, well, you know, I tried to keep them humble, but things kept on growing. He's saying because of them being righteous and in me, things are going to flourish in their life. Proverbs 24, 5 promises that a wise man is strong and a man of knowledge increases power. So even in the sense of the wisdom and the knowledge that we're to get, God said, I'm pro-growth. I want these things to increase in your life. And switching to the time period of the start of the church in Acts 6, God says, uh, well, as he's recording the Acts of the Apostles and, and what's going on in the, uh, in the start of the church, Acts 6, 7 says, the word of God kept on spreading. That's a growth word, right? And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. You get the sense where God says, I started something, I expect it to get bigger and grow. Through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, we've got a couple of passages that we can camp in here for a few moments. In Ephesians 4 verses 14 through 16, we get the understanding that the things that God really cares about to grow in our lives. Paul says, as a result of all the things that we've discussed in the previous chapters, he says, we are no longer to be children. Again, think of how we had to be dealt with as we were children, the slap on the wrist, the immediate reward, good job, bad job, that kind of thing. Instead, we're no longer to be children. He says, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, 
from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So the warning here is don't be children that are just willing to believe anything that comes along or because of uncertainty, you're unstable, you're tripping all over yourself. Wind comes around and blows you around and everything. Instead, start to grow up into a stability. And, and so you think about the fact that we have so many philosophies competing for our mental attention. And we come in on one Sunday a week, or maybe we go to a small group, which is a great addition. And in fact, how we do church at Faith, we are a church of small groups. So we believe that is the best kind of laboratory, if you will, for Christian growth and, and character development and chasing down the things of the Lord. But we have all of these competing philosophies coming in. And if we're not built up, if we're not pursuing the right growth in our life that God has intended, that, that growth of wisdom, that growth of, of maturity, then we're just led astray. We're led around by the nose often and falling and succumbing to every wind of doctrine. And Paul's warning against this. And, and I don't know about you, but we all have areas of our life where we're prone to believe silly, silly things. You know, that God's always trying to grow us up in and trying to get us to see the reality of things. And sometimes we hang on to those, but I don't want to stop believing this, even though it doesn't make any sense. Or it's a lie we tell ourselves to justify a sinful behavior. It's a lie we tell ourselves to, to keep holding on. It's that whole thing about the, you know, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results or whatever. You know, for me, it's a, it's this constant belief I can't shake and that Bigfoot is real. I'm sorry. I have this, I have this thing. I can't help but click on the reports to say new evidence is found. And I go, I gotta see it. I don't care if the video shows the zipper on the back of the suit or anything. I'm still like, oh, I just want it to be real. Now, obviously it's a pretty harmless, dumb thing other than it just really ruins my credibility. But that's, that's, that's the example of the type of thing that draws us in. We're like, why do I want to believe that? I don't know. I just want to believe Things are bigger than I can understand or something. I don't know. I got plenty of evidence for that. Now, I will, um, I will throw Mrs. Small into the bus because she has her own silly beliefs too. She believes all of those promises that the toothpaste labels say they're going to provide. <laughs> My wife will spend pretty much the mortgage money chasing down the whitest teeth in the world. And, and she already has them. She doesn't need it. But she, any time that toothpaste promises three times more than the last one, you know, it'll get your teeth whiter and whiter. She believes it. So she has toothpaste. I have Bigfoot. Both are myth, myths and mysteries and all that stuff. And neither one will ever be proven true. So for any dentists in the room, I do apologize. But I don't buy it. I don't care. I've seen the zipper on the back of the toothpaste box. I know it's not real. I only know because my teeth don't react to it, so... Paul is telling the church, he says, don't be children anymore. Be, be grown up, pursue maturity in your life. This complete growth. You picture as he does a beautiful job spelling out how the body is growing together underneath the head who is Jesus Christ. And as Christ is the head in reordering and reprioritizing the things that the body needs, and he's the one in charge of growth, we see that the whole body just comes fitted together. And is growing up into strength and usefulness for building up of itself in love. 
Peter also emphasizes this. Now, let's remember Jack for a second, okay? So uh, Paul to the Ephesians is saying, grow up as children. Let Christ, who is the head, govern the growth, the balanced growth of the body. Peter's going to back this up. And if Jack had, had been taken early on in his his Christian life, after he had prayed the prayer, after he had accepted Jesus, and, and someone had shared with him what Peter had to say about the things he's supposed to do next, I think Jack's experience in his walk with Christ would have been a little bit different had he surrendered to it. There's always two sides to the same coin. It's our responsibility as disciplers to show those that are new in the faith. This is what the Lord expects. This is what the Lord promises. This is what he has for you. But there's also a responsibility of those that are new in their faith to say, okay, all of my best thinking, all of my best allegiances have got me into this problem that I'm in right now or got me to this point in my life. I'm no longer answering to myself. I'm no longer ordering my own life for myself. If you show me in scripture who God is and what he expects of me, I surrender. If someone had taken him to Second Peter chapter 1, let's just see what he, what he says here in verses 5 through 7. Now for this reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. Let's just stop there for a second because the word supply is very key here, especially in our culture, right? Because our culture believes all men are born basically good. Idiots. Yes. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Um, The world says, you're not a very good student. All men are born basically good seems to be the prevailing mindset of our day. And all we need to do is tap into that provided that, that natural goodness and capitalize on it and the world will be a better place. Everyone will get a Coke and we'll be all healed and all set. Instead, what the scriptures continue to clue us in on, but even here somewhat subtly in second Peter is that moral excellence or goodness is supplied that it isn't born from within, but instead what we have brought to the table is everything but moral excellence. So, so Peter is saying that in your faith, as you've been renewed in Christ, supply in your faith, moral excellence or goodness. And in your moral excellence, don't just stop there. Let's add to it knowledge and in your knowledge, self-control and in your self-control, perseverance and in your perseverance, godliness and in your godliness, brotherly kindness and in your brotherly kindness, love. You have just laid out for Jack a map towards not falling into a pit of void and emptiness as he just goes through the religious routines that so often people fall into in their idea of what Christianity is. That going through the motions, singing the songs, going to church, even doing the externals, plugging into my small group and doing those kinds of things just for the sake of providing what I feel like I need lacks this real plan of growth of what God had intended for his children all along. So if we're building, this is a whole uh, passage of building on top of, you start with a foundation, you add to it and you keep on going. If Jack had been led to this, he would see that with the moral goodness or the moral excellence that Christ supplies in him, he needs to add knowledge. Knowledge is simply knowledge that, that growing in your understanding of the things of God, even growing in your understanding of the state of the world. That's why Pastor Bill said idiots. He's grown in his state of his understanding of the world. And so when we come to this, this challenge of growing in your knowledge, it's important for us to desire that step. So if Jack had said, I don't have time for that, 
I can't make time for that. I don't need to grow in my understanding of who God is or who, who I am or who the world is. I don't need to be challenged in that area. You can see part of the reason why Jack stays stuck at a level that eventually comes back to bite him. Knowledge uh, then is, is this kind of thing that kind deeds, or I should, I should put it this way, moral excellence is without, kind, without knowledge, it can be misdirected. How many people do we know that just want to help the world? And they go all over the place and they can't quite finish a task or can't finish a project or they're getting dragged around because of their desire to just make everybody happy and it's hard for them to feel like, okay, I'm really doing something that accomplishes. That's what happens when moral excellence isn't balanced with knowledge. When we know where we're supposed to be and what we're doing, then all of a sudden this balance starts to build. But knowledge just by itself, or if we were to stop there, becomes a dangerous thing too. That's why we need to add self-control. You all know people that have a lot of knowledge that may not exercise the greatest self-control. I didn't ask for advice on that. Why do you keep telling me I'm wrong? Why can't you stop telling me all the ways you would do it differently? A lot of people have a lot of knowledge, but without self-control, it becomes this invasive, obnoxious, annoying thing. And so what the, the pursuit here that Jack needs to understand is that he's, he's building this knowledge into his life. He has to apply self-control so that knowledge doesn't start dragging him all around too. Well, I know everything everyone else is supposed to know, and I'm going to go share it with them. Exercise some self-control because knowledge without self-control can be arrogant and pushy. Now, the, um, is it the ascetics? I always say, I want to say the aesthetics, but asceticism is uh, a practice of kind of what we would know from example of flogging yourself and just trying to prove your suffering for Christ and, and I don't deserve better and I'm trying to beat down and mortify the flesh and all of these things. So I'm going to go to these extremes of proving that I'm willing to uh, take the low road and take suffering upon myself. And there's a lot of other you know, reasons for all that, but I'm simplifying it. But the point is, is that if we do not balance out self-control with perseverance, which says my diminishing of myself and my holding myself back, that is my flesh, without moving forward in the things of God, as we'll see, also creates this kind of this, this monastic retreating from everything, backing off from all of the, all the call of God and all the things that we're supposed to do going into the mission field and stuff. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, uh, an Eeyore existence. We just watched that Christopher Robin movie and they did a great job with Eeyore. But one thing I kept seeing from Eeyore is how he just thought, oh, you know, he's, he's floating down the river. This is what I deserve heading for the waterfall. Oh, well, you know. And Christians have made a, they've marketed this kind of, or cornered the market, I should say, on this self-control pursuit that also starts to get this negative, I'm not stepping out, I'm not allowing myself to be challenged, I'm not doing the things that God's called me to do because I don't trust myself, and maybe it's all the flesh, maybe I'm not doing it for God's glory. That's why we need balance in these things. Self-control balanced with perseverance is this kind of, I'm cautious about who I am and the trouble I can get into and the arrogance that I can develop in my head but I'm not going to be held back because of those things. If God's clearly calling me to take this step of faith, I'll let him convict me. If I'm, if I'm approaching this wrong, I'll let him show me. 
But this perseverance goes towards godliness. This is the balance in all of this because there's a lot of persevering people in our in our culture, we, we like to use the term adrenaline junkies. There are a lot of people trying to do a lot of things to feed off the next adventure. So this pursuit is balanced by a pursuit and an aim towards godliness so that it, this doesn't become a self-determination. Well, I've just got to do these things for God because I can't sit still. Maybe God wants you to sit still. Maybe God has something else he wants you to do. So let's not let this perseverance become the thing that defines who we are, but rather that godliness is what defines who we are. This then starts moving into these last two pieces of, of this passage. Brotherly kindness. And, and, and you could think of brotherly kindness like in the first sense of the uh, moral excellence because we think of just kindness and goodness. But I love the addition of the word brotherly in this passage because a brother is going to be the one who's still called on to show kindness even when their sibling is being a jerk or even when their sibling is abusing those privileges and stuff that somehow, some way, I cannot shake the burden of still trying to love my sister or my brother. And I got to strategize about the best way to do that, but their family, what am I supposed to do? You know that tie that gets so many of us worn out and strung out and everything because we're just trying to help people that are wayward or they're abusers of our kindness and things. And I love the fact that Peter says, I want you to show brotherly kindness. And, and instead for years, I've been looking at that in, in the sense of what we do in church. We shake hands and I'm, I'm, you know, raised in a Baptist church. We called everybody brother and sister is brother, this and brother, that brother, 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 brother. And we said it so often, my friend Chad and I started calling each other peanut butter because that's what it sounded like we were saying. Peanut butter, peanut butter. <laughs> so I looked at it as the positive, this brotherly kindness, you know, just be excited to see them and everything. But then I'm thinking about it going, you know, I've seen so many siblings, you know, get dragged through the mud because of this unshakable uh, responsibility to take care of their brother or their sister, even when life's not going well for them. And I wonder if that's where Peter is getting at, that brotherly kindness is a commitment. It's not just what emotionally feels good in the moment. And this is what starts to yield to the final piece of this in this passage, which is love. And we've defined love over and over again as doing the best for the object that you love, to the one loved. You do the best for them, not the thing that gives us the most heartwarming. I mean, we're in a time of year now where throwing the coins in the kettle is going to make us feel good. Um, getting the gift for the tree out is going to make us feel good. And this is not a warning to say, don't do that because you're going to feel good about it. Again, that goes back to, well, you know, I got to show some self-control. And if I really enjoy it, then maybe God's not in it. God calls us into the things that are enjoyable too. But it goes beyond that. It's beyond just the quick acts of kindness. It's that commitment. It's that willingness to do the best thing for the one that we love. So Peter is going to wrap this thought up in verse 8 by saying, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Since February, we've been going down this path of what makes a church healthy. And this whole um, sermon this morning is really about personal growth. That if, if the people of our church and the church universal care about and passionately pursue what is God calling me to and what kind of growth and increase has he really um, uh, challenged me to, to receive, and I'm going to make that my passion. I'm going to chase that down. These things do not come by osmosis. These things do not come by us just being faithful to Sunday morning. So that, that can, in a sense, feel like I'm getting warmed up to the flame. 
But, but where the ownership, where the responsibility comes is, is saying, are we, are we bringing more logs into this? Uh, who, who's cutting down trees and who's thinking about where all this starts and, you know, and just kind of thinking about, we've, we got to keep the flame going and I can't take this lightly. I'm not just here to, to receive warm hands from me. This guy's cold over here too. So come over here and that, that you, you're not in a great spot. Why don't you come over here? It's warmer on this side and smoke's blowing in this direction as it always is, right? Wherever we're standing around the campfire. Amen, Mainers. And so, you know, this is the idea is that we take on for ourselves a responsibility of growth. That as the Lord is holding this out before us, we say, I can't live without that. That my pursuit is in knowledge and in godliness with perseverance and in balance towards brotherly love. To do all those things, not because uh, crisis has hit. And, and, you know, it's not that doing these things helps us avoid crisis either. But it prepares us for them. It shows us the purpose and meaning in them. And there's a strange strength that comes for those that have been prepared. Even through the tears, even through the heartache, there's just this, there's this quiet confidence that is, is, is hard for us to, to really imagine and behold from the outside. And that's what happens when we've prepared our lives for those moments. This is what the Lord is calling us to as a healthy church. As we're wrapping up this whole series, I think it's appropriate that we're kind of finishing it on this. What will you and I do to pursue and chase down the growth that God wants to bless in our life that may have nothing to do with material uh, needs or lands or hills or any of those things, but instead that peace and that strength and that wisdom and knowledge that he wants to provide each and every one of us. So that's our prayer for the people of faith as we go forward in this together. Would you please stand? We're going to close our time in prayer and we're going to dismiss our men out to the hub and ask our ladies to stay here. Lord God, I thank you, Lord, for giving us the time to be in your word today. Thank you, Lord, for moving us uh, in worship by your amazing grace and the thought, Lord, of how you are such a provider for us. Bless our, our times together as we um, split up our, our guys and our girls, Lord. I pray that men um, of faith will find their calling and find their unique path in the ways that you've created them. I pray that our ladies, Lord, will continue to have hearts after you, that they will continue to uh, uh, reach those that are around them. And, uh, and Lord, that both of these groups of people and all the other ministries that happen, Lord, would be uh, blessings to you, that they would be their own form of praise to your goodness. Lord, prepare us for tonight. We have so many important things to talk about and to see and to experience together. I pray, Lord, that you would bring out the faithful. I pray that we would carry this burden together, that we would anticipate great things to come. In Jesus' name, amen.